Thank you. Please be seated. As you know, one of the things that we've had to change among many is the fact that we're no longer taking an offering during our worship service. And yet, uh, one of the ways that we worship God is to be gracious in our spirit and and generous in our giving. And so uh, let me just remind you that uh, we still have bills to pay here at the church. I think they're still paying the pastor. I think that was the agreement uh, we had made. Uh, But if, uh, if you are so inclined, if you haven't already done so, find the offering boxes They are in the atrium, and again, you have been so very generous through this season. But uh, those of you who may be listening online or even in here, you can give securely online uh, through our website, and we're happy to to have you do that as well. But that is an important part of our worship. A lot of things have changed in these days, but it's good to see you who are here among us. We still miss those who aren't able to come yet, but we know that uh, we'll all be together very, very soon. But boy, wasn't it good just to worship, sing some of those old hymns, to praise the Lord? It was, it was. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, I have a message that I want to share, and I share this with humility, but I also share it with determination. I believe this is a message that God has placed in my heart, and I want to share it with you today with conviction. It comes out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I invite you, if you would have your Bible, to turn with me there. Paul here is expressing some of the profound truths of our faith. And boy, I, I could probably do a whole series of messages and still not really tap into all the depth of what this passage is, is really communicating. But there's a particular area of concern that I want to address as a church and as our community today that I, I think that this passage speaks to very, very uh, emboldened and, and, and beautifully as well. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 And I invite you to uh, turn there with me, and we are going to begin with verse 15. Again, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the church, and this is what he has to say. And he, speaking of Jesus, died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he is committed to us. The message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. May God add his blessing to his word this morning. I don't think it will surprise any of you when I say this past week or so we have seen the underbelly of sin fully exposed this past week. Satan is one we are told in scripture by Jesus who said he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And boy, what a field day he has had in our nation if what was going on with all this pandemic and COVID-19 wasn't enough, 
Everyone with a conscience was appalled as they saw that video of a Minneapolis police officer named Derek Chauvin using excessive force against an African-American man as he pinned him to the ground with his knees on his neck for, what, eight horrifying minutes. The calloused policeman ignored the pleas of George Floyd and the concerned bystanders And he refused to let up. As we now know, Floyd was just 46 years old. We saw evil in that. We saw the hideous nature of sin. Many protested, and I want to just say I believe that was a right thing to do. Standing up and saying this kind of brutality and disregard for life is unacceptable in our society. And so people of all backgrounds joined together to confront this evil. However, as many of us also know, many in our cities, those righteous protests devolved into looting and vandalization and violence in acts of retaliation. This too, let's face it, was a sin acting out. It was unrestrained, producing anarchy and further division. Police officers, including African-American officers David Underwood and David Dorn, were killed in the mayhem. Now, again, the Apostle Paul has much to say in this passage, but I want to begin by pointing out that Paul declares that as a church, we are a part of a new creation. The indication, of course, is that something has gone terribly wrong with the old one, with the old creation. And it makes me think back to the book of Genesis and We know the story of the fall. We know the story of the first sin. But as we read the book of Genesis, it's interesting to me that a motif, rather uh, an interesting motif and horrifying motif, begins to develop. What we see is this. The, The theme is brother against brother. And four times at least in Genesis, we see that theme develop. First, of course, you have Cain and Abel. The very first brothers. Cain is jealous of Abel and it is his decision and determination to kill his brother. He murders him. And you'll remember when God confronts Cain, Cain replies, am I my brother's keeper? And the Genesis response or the gospel message, I think, is a clear and resounding yes, yes, yes you are. But later we have the story of the sons of Abraham. Two brothers from the same father, but from different mothers. You remember their names, Ishmael and Isaac. But again, there's jealousy and enmity. And so Ishmael and his mother Hagar are forced out from the camp and they are abandoned. But that is not the end of the story. Isaac gives birth to Esau and Jacob. Twins. Brothers who shared the very womb from which they came, even then they were rivals. Two brothers, very much the same, yet very different. Esau, firstborn, you remember he was hairy and he liked to hunt. And then, of course, you had Jacob. And he was a little softer. He liked to cook more, rather, in the kitchen. And so we see that Jacob steals the blessing and the birthright from his brother, Now, at that, you'd think Genesis was done. It's made its point, but no. Jacob also has sons, and one of them is Joseph. And you remember what happened to him. 
The other brothers are not fond of Joseph. He's a dreamer. And you remember one fateful day, they beat him and leave him for dead in the wilderness. But in an act of compassion, they sell him as property. And he ends up a slave in Egypt. Now think about that. That's the old story. That's the creation. That's the old creation in Genesis worked out. Brother against brother. What do we see but murder, abandonment, stealing, slavery, jealousy, selfishness, oppression. Man, if you look at our headlines today, very little seems to have changed from the beginning. Yet Paul declares a new creation has begun with Jesus Christ. The old is gone. The new has come, he said. That means the old way of doing things, the old way of seeing things, the old way of dealing with our brother is gone. The old way is gone. 1 John 2.9 says it this way. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. And there is still so much dark. Paul says, however, you, the church, we are Christ's ambassadors. Now, I want you to know that's a loaded word. That's a political word. It is a word that reminds us of the kingdom of God. In other words, as Christians, we are to represent the manifestation of God's kingdom established not only in our hearts, but how it's lived out in society, in the world, in its systems. The world without God's kingdom is dangerous and deadly and full of bitterness and violence. But Paul says, we are Christ's ambassadors. And so that means, church, that that our first and only allegiance is to follow him, to love like he loves, to hate what he hates, to sacrifice ourselves as he was willing to do for the good of others. And so we become the kind of people who are willing to risk our own comfort and our own prestige for the benefit of others, just like Jesus did. Why? Because we are his ambassadors, the evidence of his kingdom in this world. And let me remind you that means that if we are allegiant to him, that we don't follow a politician. We don't follow a political party, a celebrity, or a scientist. We follow one person, Jesus Christ, his rule, now and forever. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, O Lord, both uh, as it's done on earth as it is in heaven. Up there may it come down here. That is the cry of the church. We are a part of his kingdom. Now, now let me ask you then, what would it mean to look like? What would that kingdom involve? What do we know about that kingdom? I've been thinking about that this week. and I came across a verse in Psalm 89, 89 verse 14, and it describes his kingdom this way. It says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, O God. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of of God's throne. So it seems to me as the people of God there are two things that we are concerned about, righteousness and justice. By the way, that means that it's not one or the other. These are two pillars. These are twin towers of God's kingdom. Righteousness and justice are necessary for God's rule to be realized. Well, let's talk about what is righteousness. 
Well, righteousness is the the moral standard by which God will hold every person accountable. In other words, this word refers to almost a personal responsibility. God's law, do I line up with that law? Am I living out that law and, and his moral standard? This is a personal responsibility. It is a personal accountability. So that means that, yes, a brutal policeman should be prosecuted. He acted unrighteously. So, too, the one who loots a store or throws a brick out of hatred. Those, two are unrighteous acts. Now, I don't know about you, but some have tried this week to say that we should give license to the looting and the, the stealing and the mayhem. I've heard Dr. King invoked when he said that riots are the language of the unheard. Now, that may be true, and we're going to talk about listening in a moment. Yes, we have to start listening. But let me also remind you that the power of Dr. King's transformative work and his call to, was his determination to act in nonviolent ways. In fact, listen to what he said. He said one, at one point, violence never brings permanent peace. It solves no social problem. This is brilliant. It merely creates new and more complicated ones. Violence is impractical because it is a descending spiral ending in destruction for all. It is immoral because it seeks to humiliate the opponent rather than win his understanding. It seeks to annihilate rather than to convert. Violence is immoral because it thrives on hatred rather than love. It destroys community and makes brotherhood impossible. It leaves society in monologue rather than dialogue. Violence ends up defeating itself. It creates bitterness in the survivors and brutality in the destroyers. Those are profound words. Violence is unrighteous. And as Christians, ambassadors of God's kingdom, we are concerned for what? Righteousness. But, but there is justice too. That's the other side of this. Justice, if righteousness is about personal responsibility, personal accountability to God's moral standards, then justice is about equity and impartial application of God's moral standard in society. It has more about the corporate and community responsibility. That's justice. God and his people then should be the most grieved that there are those among us who in systemic ways have been held down. We, we, we as Christians can sometimes, especially as, as white Christians, can put our hands in the, heads in the sand and deny it and say, well, we had nothing to do with slavery. It was not our fault. Or the truth is we can realize there are still two Americas. There is still inequity in our society. And and we, along with Paul then, as he says here, begin to take responsibility and, 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 and seriously discuss this ministry of reconciliation that we are to have. We, we acknowledge, therefore, that there are sins in our culture, that racism still exists, and we listen and we learn. 
Friends, this is so important to us because if we have been reconciled to God and we have, then we can throw our energies in to being reconciled to our brothers and sisters. You see, God wants both righteousness and justice in society. And we as his church need to care about both. And so Paul says it this way. We no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. But Christ has died for all. 2,000 years ago, Jesus ended the debate about whose life matters. And so it ought to grieve anyone in this room that not all lives are valued the same way. And we should work to that end. So, so what can we do? That has been the question on my heart and my mind and I've been grappling with this week. What can we do to make a difference? And I want to offer you some simple suggestions as a place to start. First, we are in this series called Desperate Prayer. I didn't know how uh, this would come out, but, but I believe that this begins with a prayerful spirit. So first, we can pray desperately for God's intervention in our country. Now, we must do more than pray, but we can never do less than pray. Prayer, if you think about it, is our first protest. We come before the throne of God and we say, Lord, this is not right. Please help us to figure this out. Help us to transform our community. Help us to make a difference. We are a people who believe in change and transformation. Transform us, transform our community, transform our world. Max Lucado says, our prayers may be awkward, our attempts feeble, but since the power of prayer is in the one who hears it and not in the one who says it, our prayers make a difference. So we ought to be praying. We ought to be on our knees seeking God. Because I believe God is up to something in our days, don't you? God is shaking us. God is shaking our nation. I believe he's shaking the church. He's shaking our nation in a way that that reminds us that right now we have an opportunity to repent of our pride. We ought to be repenting of our prejudices, our incivility toward one another, our idols, our sinful attitudes. And the truth is God can save us right now. He can. Nothing is impossible with God. Listen, if a virus so small that we can't even see can shut down the world for two months, Almighty God can bring our nation to its knees in a second and initiate a revival of spirit like we've never seen before. He still can do that, and I believe he wants to. Only he can transform hearts and change worlds. So let us, as the people of God, humble ourselves before God and pray and seek his face with humility. So we need to pray. But second, and and I think this is important too, we must remember that the church is essential for bringing about change, justice, and reconciliation. And as a church, we've got to work toward that reality. Listen, I, I've thought about this. We don't need a governor or a president, for that matter, to tell us that the church is essential. We already knew that. We in the body of Christ are already aware of how important this community is right here. We are the evidence of God's rule in the world. 
I found it interesting a couple of weeks ago I came across a, a book that, that has fascinated me. It's written by a man named Tom Holland. He wrote it. It's called Dominion, the Making of the Western Mind. Now, what's interesting to me is this. Holland is a a noted historian, respected scholar, but he's an atheist. He's not a Christian. But in his work, he argues that there is nothing self-evident about the equal intrinsic worth of all human beings or the inherent preciousness of individual persons. He says, at least not in most cultures in history, there is no concept of this equality among people. He acknowledges, in fact, that you don't even get that in secularism. It doesn't come from that. It is one of the great gifts of Christianity to Western civilization. He argues and makes the point, he says, before Christ, Caesar killed a million Gauls and enslaved millions more, and no one thought anything about it. That's just the way the world works. Might makes right. When you're on top, you get to do what you want. And in fact, across the Roman world, he talks about wailing infants found on the roadside, on rubbish heaps and in drains left to perish because of children. They they didn't want them. That was how Romans did it. Females might be caught up and rescued as slaves or sold into brothels. But the weak and the powerless, they had no voice. The poor, the weak had no value. That was the way the world worked. But Holland acknowledges it was Christianity that began to change that. He says a secularist may take this for granted that we are all of inherent value. But he asks the question, where did they get that notion? It is simply an assumption of truth. But he says those values come from Christianity. And then he says this, the Christian story tells of the son of God being born in poverty being put to death on a cross. The imperial power of Rome labeled him a criminal, and he dies an unjust death. Holland goes on to argue the death of Jesus shows that the powerless can be seen as God's children. It's an amazing insight, and therefore they deserve respect just as much as anyone in high society. History was a drama of sin and redemption in which God, acting through his son, was on the side of the weak, Christians said. And this had a profound impact on all of Western civilization. Now, as we think about that, let's be honest, it took us a while to to get there. And we still haven't gotten there yet. We still aren't there. But it is the Christian faith that leads us to this understanding that we are all created equal. We all are created in the image of of our Heavenly Father. Now, we still haven't realized the full implications of the cross and what Christ has accomplished, but without the gospel message and the church to tell it, where would our nation be? I've read in the Wall Street Journal a prediction that as many as a third of the churches in our country will close in the next 24 months because of COVID-19. Close, forever. I don't know if that's true. It may be dark. It may be, but, but there are a lot of churches that are on the edge. They were on the edge before, and this is just going to, to, to be the end. Boy, I want you to know we're not planning to close. We're going to fight. 
because we think that the church is essential. But we aren't planning to sit still either. I believe our nation needs us. I believe the gospel is still the hope of our country. I believe the gospel and God's spirit ruling in the lives of his people can bring about peace and healing to our country. And so this morning, I would like to invite you to join me. Some of you already have a burden here. Some of you need to develop a burden in your spirit. But this morning, I want to ask you to consider joining us in a ministry a task force, if you will, of reconciliation in our church. Some have already reached out to me this week, others after the first service, and I've so appreciated the conversations I've begun to have. And listen to me, I don't have all the answers. In fact, I don't even know all the questions. But I think it would behoove us to develop a task force of ministry, how we can be engaged in in talking about issues of race relations to talk about these issues of inequity and and, and really maybe have our eyes open in ways that that we're just not aware of. And and it means that maybe we're going to need to be patient. We're going to listen. We're we're not going to quarrel. We're going to, you know, there's a difference between a a conversation is you want to learn, a quarrel is you want to win. That's not what this will be about. It will be about listening to each other and and determining, Lord, what would you have us do as a church differently? And I'd like you to consider maybe joining us in that. How, uh, how we as a church might move differently, think differently, talk differently. And, and I don't think this will be comfortable. I'm not going to make it even easy for you now. I don't exactly know when we're going to meet or how it will look like. But if you'd like to be a part, I just ask you this. Call me or email me. Because the, the church is essential to bring about reconciliation. Third. Not only is the church essential, not only do we need to pray, but third, we really do need to empathize with those who are hurting the most right now. Listen, uh, George Floyd's death sickened me, but there's a community out there, it enraged them. I need to understand that. We need to understand that rage The prophet Ezekiel said it this way. He said, I sat where they sat. I think that's a beautiful image. We need to find a way to sit down with our brothers and sisters and see it from their eyes. Terry Pluto had a rather, I thought, interesting article in The Plain Dealer this week that spoke to me. He had had a number of conversations with African-American friends One friend simply said this, it's time that we show that we care about each other. Now, I thought about that, and I thought, you know, there's actually, that's very, very profound. It's time we show we care about each other. You see, what what it occurred to me is this is not a political situation. This is not an historical situation. It, it, It is relational. And we really care about people. Jesus cares about people. I care about them too. Let's show we care about each other. He went on to describe a conversation he had with Frank Williams. Frank is a person that he had, an African-American who had been involved with jail ministry for a number of years together. He said Frank told a story about being pulled over because he was in a white neighborhood with a nice car. 
Well, Pluto noted that he too had been pulled over a few times, seemingly for no reason, in that same suburb. He said, Pluto said, well, I viewed it as the police being bored or just checking to see if I had been drinking that night. It was late, after, late at night after all, and I had been covering some of the games for the newspaper. But he said, you know, when I listened to William's story, I saw it differently. He saw it through his racial experience. He saw it as an African-American who's not supposed to be there in that area unless he was looking for trouble. Now, the point that Pluto was making was our experience, our background, our color can cause us to, to see things very differently. And he also acknowledged that Williams had been pulled over a whole lot more than he had ever been. Now, my point in telling you that is every one of us in this room is going to be inclined to interpret every encounter in light of our own experience. And especially in light of the experience of the knowledge that, yeah, there are some rogue policemen out there who despise others simply because of the color of their skin. And that, that colors everything that you look at. That's a heavy burden to bear. So we need to take the time to sit where others sit and see from their perspective. But the truth is, some of us have no African-American friends. That's a problem. I had a beautiful friend Friday night reach out to me. She is a treasure to me. And she shared some of her concerns and some of her pain. She's processing what's going on in society. She was struggling. I'm glad she reached out to me. I don't have all the answers. I, my response is, I, I'm sorry for the ways that maybe I've contributed. And we talked a little bit about some of that history there and A lot of us don't have any of those conversations or have a conversation with someone that we could talk honestly and openly and sometimes uncomfortably with. Maybe we need to repent of that. I think about Jesus who is our high priest and why is he such a great high priest? Because he came to this earth and he lived where we were and he knew about our grief and our sorrow and our temptations. He knows all of that. He sat where we sat. Uh, Is it any wonder he calls us as his ambassadors to go sit where others sit and understand? That is the ministry of reconciliation. Fourth, I I told you last week I was going to give shorter sermons. That was a lie, apparently. (laughs) I apologize. Sorry about that. Not good at that. Fourth, and with this I'll be wrapping up. Fourth, we, we should go out of our way to practice love and forgiveness even in the most difficult of circumstances. Why? Because we were forgiven by God. I mentioned earlier the story of Joseph and his brothers, and you remember that's a remarkable story. Joseph, the lowest of low, he's in jail, he's, he's, in, he's in prison, he's a slave, and yet God exalts him because God is with him, and he ends up ruling Egypt. 
And his brothers come because they need food and they've got to talk to Joseph to get it. They don't know it's Joseph. But you remember as Joseph shares his identity, Joseph then proclaims what you intended for evil, God has intended for good. The great reversal, God. <laughs> when you add God to the mix, everything changes. Perhaps this time, let it be, O Lord, may it be what what man has intended for evil, what Satan has intended to rip apart our nation. May it be that God will turn this around and use it for good. A great example of this to me, one that I will never forget, is last year. Jean Bryant was, Brant Brant Jean, I should say. Brant Jean is an African-American. He was 18 years old. He lost his brother when a police officer had killed him. He, uh, his brother was his hero. You may remember the story. It was from Texas. The police officer thought that she was going into her own apartment But she was one floor mistaken, one floor off. And she concluded when she came into that apartment that the man who was there was an intruder. And so she shot him and killed him. Brant Jean, again just 18 years old, was called into the court to to talk about the impact that this had had on his family. And he talked about what was taken away from him, but then he clearly said, I forgive you, and I want the very best for you. And then he said this. Then he told her that his main desire wasn't for her to go to jail, but instead he told her, my main hope for you is that you would give your life to Christ. Then he said to the judge, I, I, I don't know if this is possible, but can I give her a hug, please? The news reported as the two embraced in tears, the courtroom was mostly silent except for the sound of sobbing. You know, th- th- that's the only way I know. To break the cycle of hatred that is dividing our country right now. Forgiveness. If blacks and whites, police and citizens, Republicans and Democrats, rich and poor, would determine to give themselves completely over to the Christ who says, I forgive you. This world will be different. Paul wrote it this way. He said, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The only way. And that's why we need the church. That's why we need the Holy Spirit working within us. So that we are not part of the problem. God is transforming us so that we can be part of a new world, a new creation that he wants to see in this one. And I look forward to that day, and I hope that you do too, when we will all gather around the throne of God, build on the foundation of righteousness and justice, where every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every race will be singing his praises for all eternity. That's where we're headed. May we experience a bit of that heavenly, heavenly new creation in our communities today. 
Will you pray with me? Father, I come before you with humility. I know there is still much to do, and there's much to do in me. There's much to do in our church. I recognize that. But, Lord, I believe your church is to the, called to the task of the ministry of reconciliation. And, Lord, through your spirit and with your help, we will accomplish that. Lord, we think about how beautiful it is that, that you have saved us, that you have reconciled us to yourself. May we be about reconciling brother to brother, sister to sister, that, Lord, we would, we would hold each other up and value each other, and that, Lord, we would listen and see and be patient May you show us the way. Lord, we know that the way begins with this, that that we would acknowledge our need for a Savior. Everyone in this room, Lord, is a sinner. Everyone in this room doesn't... Uh, may or may not have had a relationship with you. And, and Lord, if we, uh, we, we don't make it to heaven based on our goodness, but we make it to heaven because, Lord, you chose to, to, to save us through what you did on the cross. Lord, with that knowledge, may we then be patient and kind and gentle and generous to those around us. Lord, I pray that, that we would make you our Lord, put you first, lay down all of our idols, and that you will use us as your ambassadors of love, righteousness, truth, peace, and healing. I pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen and amen.